Okay. Oh. Okay. There we go. I didn't have a chance to meet and greet all the new visitors, but I'm just so happy that you're here today and that you can join us uh, at this time around the Lord's uh, teaching and also time of worship. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us and be with us. <clears throat> you know, Billy Graham uh, loved to tell this story uh, at his crusades, and one of the famous stories goes like this. <clears throat> he spoke of a policeman in northern England. And this policeman was walking down the street, and suddenly he could hear uh, a, a baby, or what sounded like a baby or a very young person crying. And so he looked around, and he found this little boy tucked away in the corner, and uh, this little boy was lost. He was lost. He had lost his way, and he was frightened. He was uh, desperately wanted to get home, and uh, so he turned to the policeman and through his tears and everything, would you please take me home? Would you please take me home? And so the policeman, of course, yes, yes, and so the policeman did the right thing. He went, bent down to the little boy and he said, uh, well, where do you live? And the little boy just started crying all over again. And uh, so the policeman said, oh my. And then he decided, and he said, well, do you live on this street? No. Do you live on this street? No. Do you live on that street? No. And so finally, the little boy was getting desperate. The policeman was getting desperate. And so just at that moment, the policeman looked over to the town square. And in the center of the town square was a church with a huge cross on it. And so like a stroke of inspiration, the policeman turned to the young boy and he said, if I take you over to that church, would that help you find your home? And the little boy just stopped crying and across his face there was this gigantic smile. And he said, yes, take me to the cross and I can find my way home. And so that was a wonderful story. And then Billy Graham went on to say, here's the point of the story. The point of the story is the cross will help you find your way home. The cross will help you find your way home. The cross will help you find your way back to God. And that was what uh, Billy Graham was trying to convey to his audience at that time. The message of the cross is essential to everyone if we are to find our way to God. If they want to have forgiveness of sin and eternal life with God. Yet you know and I know that the message of the cross is not easy to get across to people. For example... How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have met people who reject the message of the cross vigorously, vigorously, you know, and they're the type of people that would say, oh, come on, come on, how can you believe that stuff, and so on and so forth, and they, their voice gets louder, and their body language gets more stiffened, and all of that kind of stuff. Then, there's also the people who resent, who resent the gospel message, the, uh, the message of the cross. They find it offensive, maybe perhaps being called a sinner, perhaps being under the hand, wrath of God. Those things are not what they want to hear. So they resent it uh, most violently sometimes. But you know, most people, most people that I've run across when I've tried to share the message of the cross, basically don't get it. They don't get it. They say, why are you wasting my time? You know, why, why is it that you're so uh, passionate about me hearing this message? Most people read, uh, just completely uh, don't get the message or they don't bother with it. They don't bother with it. 
And so this is the reaction that most people give. And it doesn't matter how many different ways you do it or how many times you do it. They just don't want to hear about it. They're just closing themselves off from the message of the cross. Now, there's a fallout from all this because what happens is many believers often refrain from sharing the message of the cross and many unbelievers still remain under the wrath of God. We don't want to deal with people who reject the, the message of the cross. We don't want to deal with people who resent the cross. So the safest thing to do is refrain from sharing. And so we just sort of sit on our hands, we yawn, and we just try to find some other way to distract ourselves. But that's what happens. Now, we can overcome this reluctance to proclaim the gospel if we better understand the roles of God in the, gospel, in the, in the presentation of the gospel. You see, sometimes we're sold into the idea that you just have the right method. Just have the right method. Just have the right words. Have all the cute sayings and all of that kind of stuff. And people will come and hear the word of God and the gospel and they will accept. That's what we've been told. All right? But how many, don't raise your hands, but how many of us in this place say, well, you know, no, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening. So <clears throat> when we come to this part of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find that Paul says some very passionate things about proclaiming the message of Christ crucified. What is it that drove Paul to be so passionate and hold about, uh, to, and bold to uh, uh, give this message of Christ crucified? And how can that fervent spirit impact each of us and the people that we come in contact with? And so I think this message is probably has something for all of us in this room. And hopefully when we leave here, we'll be encouraged to share the message of the gospel with all the people that God brings across our path. Now, because we do have a number of visitors, we have to start a little bit with some background about the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this, caused, this is what I call stroll down memory lane in the city of Corinth. Okay, strolling down memory lane. What is it about the Corinthians? Culturally, the Corinthians were people who were pagan, proud, and philosophical. Okay? These were people who prided themselves on being Corinthians. These were people who uh, 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 were very proud of their heritage, and they were very pagan in their practices. These were the same people that had built the temple Aphrodite in their city, and they had a thousand temple prostitutes who would uh, see and, and serve every possible of, uh, uh, perverted uh, sexual desire. And so these were the people that Paul had to write to. Spiritually, some of those were, became Christians, and the Corinthian Christians were divided, defiled, and disgraced. And so the Corinthian Christians had a hard time separating themselves from the way they lived as, uh, in their pagan past. So much so that they still thought and believed much like they did before they were saved. Now imagine that, folks. Imagine that. Imagine if you were in a church, and in this church were people who were coming out of this, you know, these, these backgrounds of addictions and all kinds of obsessions and all of these kinds of things, and they formed a church. What would that church look like? Okay, especially if they didn't make a conscious decision to separate themselves from their past. And that's where they were getting into trouble. Now, when Paul addresses the Corinthian church, he does so in the early chapters. And he gives a big, giant uh, 
comparison between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. They are opposites. They are diametrically opposed, especially when it comes to the message of the cross, okay? To the, to the person who was a pagan, the person who uh, was used to thinking a certain way, the cross was foolishness. It was foolish. What kind of savior is this that dies? I want one that lives. I want one that goes out and deals with all the bad guys, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But here you have a savior who dies? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't register. It doesn't compute, okay? And so this is what the people at, uh, at Corinth presented to Paul. To them, the preaching of the cross was foolishness. This was in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. The fact that God likes to choose the weak to overcome the strong in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, seemed to be uh, silly and inefficient. I mean, after all, if you, wanted, if you had a goal, if you had some purpose that you really wanted to accomplish, would you really pick the weakest person to do it? Would you really pick the person who is so, not so uh, qualified or so capable in the eyes of the world? No, you'd probably try to get the biggest, you know, brightest and the, and the fastest people in the world working on your team, okay, to do that. But this was the wisdom of God at work. And so this is what Paul was confronting, okay? And the biggest display of the wisdom of God is exemplified in the crucifixion of Christ for the sins of humanity. And Paul shows how the different members of the Godhead play an important role in the gospel, in the good news, all right? And so this is where we pick it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Now, in verses 1 to 5, we come to the part where it says Christ and the good news, Christ and the good news. Now, this falls out really nicely because if you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul clearly defines his message, his message. What was the point of all the things he was saying and teaching, it was this. It was that he was proclaiming uh, the message that Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, notice here that he did not, he says in verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except... Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul, right off the bat, says, look, there's a difference between me and the itinerant philosophers and teachers of this city, all right? They were very eloquent. They were very talented people. And he turned around and said, there's a big difference between the two. I did not come to you with eloquent speech or worldly wisdom, he says. And I, was, I made a decision. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right? And so the, this was the prime example of God's wisdom at work in God's salvation plan involving Jesus Christ being crucified. This was the centerpiece. Everything else for Paul revolves around it. This was Paul's primary message. This was Paul's primary ministry. Today, sometimes the gospel gets lost. 
It gets lost. What does it get lost in? Oh, it gets lost in all kinds of ministry advertisements. It gets lost in all kinds of, you know, programs. It gets lost in all kinds of, you know, good works that we should be doing. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. However, however, when they block the message of the gospel, that when they block the primary message that Jesus Christ and him crucified, there's something wrong. Somehow we're out of balance. And so Paul said to them, this is my message. But then look at how Paul did this. How did he carry it out? Look at verses 3 to 4. And he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech, my message, were not in, in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of, of, and of power. He says, wow, that's something special. He there said there, he said, weakness, fear, and much trembling. This word trembling means anxiety out of a sense of insufficiency. It means that when Paul got up in front of the people, he had his doubts. He had his uncertainty that anything he said or did would amount to anything. He had this fear that he was wasting time, that he was somehow in a losing uh, uh, endeavor. And so he lacked that kind of confidence. Now, the Corinthians were a tough audience, that was for sure. They were not a gimme, all right? They were not people that were easily given over to think, oh, that sounds good, I'll follow that. That wasn't true, okay? They had heard the best that the times had to offer. And Paul said, I'm coming to you very honestly, very sincerely, such as I am. And so, but he had this fear and trembling. But he says, I do it this way in demonstration of the spirit and of power. He's talking about the spirit's ministry and power. Okay? And this is what he hoped to do. He would not be able to take one iota, one and no piece of the pie. He would not be able to boast at all that he was the one doing the work. It was going to be a demonstration of the spirit's ministry and of God's power. Now, let's say, let's stop for a moment. We can use the different methods. Campus Crusades, Four Spiritual Laws, The Navigators, The Bridge, and so on and so forth. There's nothing wrong with those, okay? Just don't depend on them to convert the souls. At the end of the day, it is the Spirit of God and the power of God that carries the day, all right? That carries the day. Let me give you an example of that. Many of you know that a few years ago, the brother that's next to me, seven years my senior, uh, contracted lung cancer, and he was very sick, and he deteriorated in just a matter of about three months. And so I had made several trips. I flew back over because I wanted him to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. The first time I flew in there and met with him, it was my typical brother's reaction. It was, well, I'll think about it. Thanks for coming by. I just flew almost, you know, 8,000 miles to come see you. But nevertheless, that was the answer he gave me. And I said, that's fine. You need time to think, okay? Came back a second time. And I, lo and behold, he had accepted Christ as his Savior. His daughter's pastor came and visited him and clearly presented him the gospel. He put two and two together, all right? And then he accepted Jesus Christ. And then guess what? When I came back the third time, he said, would you have time to come by and baptize me in my home? And I said, 
it would be my ultimate pleasure to do that. And so in his home, I baptized my brother in the faith. And that was probably one of the most moving moments that I've ever had in my life. And it took the power of God and the Spirit of God at work. It wasn't all the fancy footwork that I put into this thing. It wasn't all the this or that or the other. It was the Spirit of God and the power of God at work. What about this business of, the, the, uh, of sharing the gospel? Paul gives his motive in verse 5. Why did he do it this way? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Whoa. Whoa, are we willing to trust God with this precious invitation that we extend to people to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? Paul did. Paul said, I step aside. I let God's power go to work, all right? And so there's this deep connection between the power of God and the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, how many of you know him? Many of you know Charles Spurgeon, right? The great Baptist preacher of a century ago. Very eloquent person. This is what he had to say about the power of God and the gospel. The power that is the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, man would be the converter of souls. No, nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. But never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it the power to convert the souls. So there's this, this, there's this intimate link between the power of God and the gospel, and we ought not to forget that. Sometimes, as a preacher, I get carried away. I get carried away with the content, with the, with the outline of the message. You know, I sit there... And I'll cross my hands like, wow, that was a good one. You know, oh, yeah, put that one in. Oh, that's, that's a good one. And then after, you know, maybe I delivered on a sentence. This doesn't happen very often, folks, so don't, don't go crazy on me, okay? But what happens, I'll say to myself, that was really a good sermon, you know? But Paul, what he is saying to us is that after he would preach and proclaim the gospel, he did not want people to say, what a wonderful sermon. Paul would much rather that the power of God be at work and people would say, what a wonderful Savior. Not a wonderful sermon, but what a wonderful Savior. That at the end of the sermon, people would come away with a sense of awe, understanding that Jesus died on the cross for them. That God laid on Jesus all our sins. That, he, uh, that on Jesus, he took our place. He died in our place. He bore our punishment. You see, that's the wonder of the gospel. That's the wonder of the good news. But it starts with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay? And so Paul was passionate about getting this out. The clear message of the gospel is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is not the persuasive method or manner you employ that 
ultimately converts a soul. It is the pure message of Jesus Christ crucified and the power of God at work through that message. Now, isn't that a relief? <laughs> isn't that a relief? I am so glad that the power of God resigns in any effort that you or I would ever make to share the gospel. Okay? So get over ourselves, get over our methods, and be bold and continue to share the message. Christ is the central figure in the good news. He was the one crucified for us. Make no mistake, that's where Christ and the good news come together. Now, also the next thing is God and the good news. God and the good news. This is found in verses 6 through 9. Okay? Verses 6 through 9. Christ's crucifixion is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. Now, there's other characteristics about this plan. There are six of them that he out, Paul outlines for us in these few passages, okay? And so, just read the verses and follow along as we go. Yet, among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. What are the points? The point, the characteristics of this plan is that it was to be given to the mature. People who would be able to understand this. People who would be able to digest it, if you will. It was a plan that was not born out of the thinking of the times, nor uh, mandated by the rulers of that day. These three points are found in verse 6. It was a plan that was once a secret and hidden wisdom of God, something hidden but now revealed. It wasn't completely revealed in the Old Testament. It's not, the gospel is not, as we know, with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, was not clearly, openly stated in the Old Testament. However, it was alluded to. But when it got into the New Testament, then it came out much clearer. And so it was a, once a secret and hidden wisdom of God, but now it's in the open. Number four, it was a plan that God decreed for our glory. And what does that mean? It means that he, God himself prepared and predetermined all of this before man was on the scene. This is verse 7, okay? Imagine the foresight that God had. Imagine the energy and the time that he took to put this together. But he did it for our ultimate glory, you see? And so that's part of the wonder of it all. Verse 8, it was a plan so great that if the rulers of the day understood it, they would not have crucified Jesus. They would not have crucified. But they didn't understand how precious all of this was, and they just went on with what they wanted to do. Lastly, it is a plan uh, that is another example of God's blessing for those who love him. I love that part when he says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. 
what God has prepared for those who love him. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes as a result of that is just one of many blessings that God gives to those who love him. Okay? And so this is what he was trying to say to us. That is God's role. That is God's role. We worry so much that this plan is not going to work. But it does and it will because God sovereignly planned it. There is no use to arguing with people when we share the good news, Jesus Christ and him crucified. As with all things that God does, it is perfect. It is perfect. I don't know how many times, you know, I get into discussions with people. It's just a friendly discussion. It was, you know, just a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, maybe a mango this or mango that, okay? Maybe even a durian. I don't know, all right? But what happens as soon as you get into talking about the message of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, what happens? Suddenly, everything loses its taste. Suddenly, everything goes south. Suddenly, everything goes kaput, right? And suddenly, your red beat in the face and your blood pressure is shot up and you feel like your heart is going to jump out of your chest. Why? Because we feel we lost confidence in God's plan. We lost confidence in God's plan. We think it's all about us. We think it's all on us. And we hate it when people reject us. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. They don't resent you. They resent Christ. And this is God's plan to get the salvation message out to people. And this is an important role. God is the planner of the plan of salvation for our glory. So, two things. What roles does Christ the Son play? He is the one who dies on the cross. What is the role of God the Father? He is the one who decrees and prepared and planned this all out. God, and so this is what the role, the important role that they have and the implications of it to us. Now, lastly, let me rush on the last one. The Holy Spirit and the good news. This is found in verses 10 through 16. Okay? And so, the Spirit of God reveals to us what? Look at verse 9. What God has prepared for those who love Him. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. He takes the promises that God makes. He takes the truths that God gives in His Word. And He makes it clear to us. He reveals them to us so that we can enjoy them. But the Spirit of God also enables us in the second part of verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, he says. He enables us. How does he enable us then? Well, first look there. He said the, Holy, the Spirit of God searches everything. The word uh, searches means to examine, to investigate. And then it says in verse 10, also even the the depths of God. If you have an NIV, it would say, uh, it would say uh, something a little bit different. It would say the deep things of God. Maybe perhaps like the doctrines. If you have a New Living Translation, it would say the deep, God's deep secrets. All of those things the Spirit would reveal to us. And He would enable us to see how. Because He searches everything. Even the deep things of God. 
The Spirit of God also, in verse 11, comprehends or understands the thoughts of God. Look at verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Wow, the spirit. He's a lot more than we make him out to be, don't we? Because he is the one who understands the thoughts of God Almighty. Well, how does that help us? How does this help you? How does it help me? In verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Wow. So when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the spirit of God takes up residence in our life. He's almost like, I like to say permanent resident PR. No, he's more than a PR. He comes in and he takes over permanent residency in our lives. Okay? And we have him. And so, why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. All right? The things that are freely given us by God. And and then verse 13, he goes on to say that he... Uh, and we impart this, meaning these, three th- these things freely given to us by God, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, he says. See, the Spirit of God doesn't reveal things to you and to me so that we keep it in. No, he reveals them to us that we may in turn impart them to others. How many of you have daily devotions? How many of you maybe keep a journal? How many of you get into the Word of God so regularly that God is showing you something more often than you think? And maybe perhaps you're even dared to write it down in your Bible or in a notebook or maybe to make a mental note of it, all right? But what happens after that? What happens to it after that? Do we share it with other people? You know, one of the remarkable things, one of the remarkable things is when I'm studying the word for sermon or devotion or something or just for my own edification, it's amazing to me how God will teach me something and it won't be too long afterwards that I'm using it with somebody. It's just like God says, I'm going to reveal it to you and then impart it to somebody else. Give it to somebody else. That's what the Spirit of God does, okay? And then, in verses 14 through 16, the Spirit of God helps us to understand, to understand. Look at verse 14, and he says there, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There are two types of people in this world, okay? I know some of you say, yes, no, no, I, I know more than that. I know more than that. You know, there's smart people and there's almost smart people. Okay, and, and you say to yourself, there's, 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 there's beautiful people and there's almost beautiful people. Okay, and you say, there's more than just two types of people. In God's eyes, there's only two kinds of people. There's the natural person and there's the spiritual person. There's the one who knows him and there's the one who doesn't know him. There's the one who has accepted him as a savior, and there's one who has not. There is one who has received Jesus Christ as a savior, and one who has rejected Jesus Christ as their savior. Let's not make this thing too difficult, okay? Paul didn't. 
He said there's a natural person and there's a spiritual person. What does he say about the natural person? He says this about the natural person. He says the natural man in verse 17. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't believe them. He will not give in to them. He would absolutely fight against them. He considers them folly. And then the third thing, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He doesn't have the faculties. He doesn't have the capability of understanding the things of God because he doesn't possess the Spirit of God. Okay? That's the natural person. And so perhaps today... There's somebody out there who perhaps is close but has not yet accepted Christ. And they're listening to all this and they're baffled by it. You're baffled by it because these are things that are spiritually discerned. Okay? And you need the help of the Holy Spirit to get that. And then in verses 15 through 16, Paul describes the spiritual man. This is the one who is saved. This is the one who has the spirit within him. That was back in verse 12. And what does he say about this person? The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, he says. For the one who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him, of course, nobody, but we have the mind of Christ. So what are the characteristics of the spiritual person? He judges all things. The word judges there means discerns or understands. He evaluates and applies all the things of God. But yet he himself is not judged, he himself, uh, he, but is himself to be judged by no one. That's what the word of God says. Now, I have to tell you, this one's a tricky, a tricky uh, word. But one of the best explanations of that that I have heard ever was this. The saved person understands the unsaved person. He understands the unsaved person. He understands that he is blinded, that he cannot see, he he rejects, he resents the the word of God because he doesn't get it. He understands that. The saved guy understands. But guess what? The unsaved person doesn't understand the saved person. He doesn't understand him. He can't understand why you are sitting here and saying to yourself, hallelujah, praise God, we're saved. And we know what's going to happen after we die. Okay? The unsaved person looks at you. Boy, aren't you weird or something? You see? He doesn't get it. But the saved person can look at the unsaved person. He can understand his resentment. He can understand his violent reaction. He can understand why he's holding back. Why? Because he's been shown by the Spirit. Why? You see? And so that's what it means by, but is himself to be judged by no one. Then that last phrase in verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. In other words, we are able to look at life from Christ's standpoint, uh, from Christ's point of view. We have uh, uh, Christ's values and and, uh, desires in mind. We think as God thinks and not as the world thinks. Okay? We have that. We possess that because we are the spiritual uh, man. Well, what does this mean to us? We need to be patient with people who do not know Christ as their Savior. They are oblivious to the things of God. We need to consciously pray for people when we share the good news with them. We must pray that the Holy Spirit reveals to them Jesus Christ and Him crucified and anything else that God cares to reveal 
to them at that time. We need to pray. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you're about to share the gospel or you are in the midst of sharing the gospel, are praying? Are praying? Or, or, or are you sitting there and say, okay, he's going to ask this question. This is the answer to the question. Page 39, point A, B, you know, I'm ready for this guy. Let it roll, you know. Or are we in a spirit of prayer for our family members, for our friends? And we're saying, Lord, please have the Holy Spirit open their mind and make this clear. That's the point. That's the point. The Holy Spirit then discloses the plan of salvation in our hearts. And so we believe. Okay? And so we believe. So what is the summary of the role of the Spirit and the good news? The Spirit of God reveals. He reveals. The Spirit of God also enables. How does He enable? Because He searches. He comprehends the things of God. He is received in us. And He helps us to understand. He helps us to understand the things that are going on. Uh, if I had to summarize this really quick, how are we saved? How are you saved? How am, I, how am I saved? Okay. Well, it's the work of the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay. All three of them have an important role. What is their role? Christ the Son died on the cross for our sins. God the Father decrees from the foundation of the world what's going to happen and who's going to do it. The Holy Spirit discloses the good news to our hearts so we believe. So all three of these are at work when we share the gospel. How does this help to how does all these things that we just learned about help us to share the good news? Number 1. Your message needs to be clear and centered on Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the basis. This is the rock bottom. This is the watershed of the gospel. It is the basis for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Yes, are there many other things that have to be taught around it? Of course. When you present Jesus Christ being crucified, someone say, why? You need to tell them why. You need to tell them that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You need to share that with them. And because we have done that, the penalty of sin is death. It's separation from God. Okay? And so what did, God, what did Jesus Christ accomplish when he died on the cross? Oh, he just effected reconciliation between us and God. How did he do that? In that while we were a sinner, Christ died for us. He took our place on the cross. See how it all connects? See how it all connects? But the foundation is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yes, loving, caring, helping others is a result of the basic fundamental relationship with God, that we make with God. But, but we must remember that it comes back to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Number two, your approach has to be measured with understanding. It has to be measured by understanding, okay? Understand what? Understand that unbelievers don't see because they can't see. The Bible says that this... Uh, the, the, the Satan has blinded the eyes of men. He doesn't want people coming to Christ. He's going to find every possible way to keep the truth away from us. Unbelievers don't see because they can't see until the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. 
Understand that you can boldly proclaim the good news without fear of what others may say or do. Those who reject or resent the gospel are not qualified to understand the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, or qualified to understand who we are who proclaim the gospel. They don't, they don't have the what with all to sit in judgment over us, you see? And so let's get over this idea that we're going to be hurt every time somebody comes to us and says, well, I don't appreciate your calling me a sinner, or I don't appreciate your telling me that if I died today, based on what you know, you're, you might be going to hell. You see? I perfectly said that pleasantly instead of viciously on purpose. Because personally, I trust God with the plan of salvation. And I'm not going to go out of my way to spoil it by being all huffy-puffy. Okay? So, we have to... Appro- be, our, 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 your approach has to be measured and... and with understanding. Number three, the last one. Your proclamation of the gospel needs to be seasoned with prayer. And lots of it. It has to be seasoned with prayer. Did you know that there are two parts to evangelism? Two parts. I thought there were four spiritual laws. I thought the Roman road had more than four parts to it. I thought even if I used the gospel of John, there's more than four parts to it. More than two parts to it. When you boil down evangelism, here's two parts. Evangelism involves the message. The message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Full stop. But evangelism also involves the translator. The translator. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. In fact, you need both. I was reading an evangelism book by... Uh, a brother in Christ named Ray Pritchard, a fellow Dallas Seminary graduate, and he wrote this. Your words won't work without a translator, and the translator does, uh, doesn't do any good unless there are words that need translation. You've got to have the message right, and you have to have the right translator to get it across. In my first church, I was there for about, I guess, almost 10 years. And it was a bilingual service. So every week, every Sunday, I was translated, okay, either into one of the dialects or, you know, uh, one of the languages. And I really grew to love my translator because he could say things that I couldn't say that made sense to the audience. He was my translator, and I knew how much I needed him. In the same way, When you and I share the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we need God's translator to take those words and drive them home and make an impact on the heart of the hearer. So, as you share Christ, pray for God to give clarity in the message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pray for confidence or boldness to share the good news before your family and friends. Now, let me quickly say, boldness does not mean being belligerent. It doesn't mean being a bully or anything like that. If you trust the plan of God, you will say it in a way 
that is effective without all of that stuff. Okay? And so this is how the, all of this can affect us. The good news involves Christ the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Christ died on the cross. God decreed. The Holy Spirit discloses the good news to our hearts. What's left for us? Go forth and share the gospel with greater clarity and confidence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, when your people come together, it is almost natural that we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. <coughs> Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's almost a natural thing for us to talk about. But it's unnatural sometimes for us to get out there and actively share it. Maybe because we're like Paul. Perhaps there's much fear and trembling. Perhaps it's because we don't have a clear message. Perhaps it's because we don't trust your plan and we think we can improve upon it. Whatever the reasons may be, let us be like Paul, who was encouraging the Corinthians to stay with the primary message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray that for every person in this sanctuary today, that Lord, in the next few weeks, few days, few months, you will bring someone across their path in which they can share the good news. And if your powers, if you grant your power to be evident that these people will be brought into the kingdom of God. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word and the roles that all play in the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.